We're coming to the end of this series uh, at Christchurch. What we do is we work through parts of the Bible. We've been working through the early part of the first book of Samuel. It's an Old Testament, and it, it's, it's really telling the story. It's, it's kind of taking us through the story of God's people and the forming of God's people and really the significant change that takes place from God's people not having a king where they considered God to be their monarch, to the idea that they want a king and they have a king. Yet at the same time, we're, we're, we're working through the journey of how God deals with his people, how he works through situations. And, and what I think I want to just throw into your thinking right at the beginning is this idea. There are times when it's already over. I didn't plan it, but we've had just about the best example that we could have had in our political world this past week. Quasi Quateng, I am absolutely 100% not going anywhere. And we know the end result. If you're not into politics, the next day he was on a flight back to be sacked. And of course, all the memes come out in terms of ideas like, yeah, actually what he was talking about was his political career, which is now not going anywhere. He thought he was going to remain. In fact, his identity, if you'd asked him while he was in America, who are you? He would have said, I am the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Great Britain. That's, that's who I am. And yet, we can probably see in even that little narrative that even as he said it, it was all over already. It was all over. It was finished. It was done. It didn't seem to be yet. And yet, it really was. And in a sense, that idea flows through the story of Saul and David and the kingship of God's people. But I want to ask the question right at the beginning and just throw some ideas in at the beginning. Is this just an interesting parallel history of God's people where we can see it is all over in the narrative as, it, as it's unfolding, we have the advantage of being able to go to the end of the story and see what happens and see yet yeah, even back there when he thought it was all okay, it was already done and finished. Is it just an interesting parallel narrative or is it something deeper? Is it something about the way God works with his people and the way God works in the world? I suggest that it is that. That in actual fact, one of the key ideas or themes of the Bible is, is kind of, it's already happened even though you haven't seen it. Or to put it another way, we live in a kind of now and not yet experience. We live now as though we are something. Even though we don't feel it, even though we don't experience it, we don't yet see it fully, and yet we are already something. If we want to understand anything, and if, if you're observing this idea of Christian faith, 
You might look at it and say, well, I'm really not sure about this idea of, of faith in God. I see people who, who believe in God. Their faith is in God. They, they, they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, Lord, and King. But I don't see the kind of hope and joy and life transformation and confidence and even life patterns of behavior that really should be there. And I would say, I get that. Why? Because all of us in that experience of faith, we live in a now. I am. It's almost as though I am that, but I'm not yet there. But the idea of God's economy, the way things work out, and the way the storylines unfold is the absolute assurance that what we see back here as a possibility is assured in God. It's an absolute certainty. We live in a now and not yet experience. The narrative of David is entwined, or actually the narrative of the story, this early part of the story of God's people through the, through the rule of the kings, through Saul and David, is entwined with their great enemy, the Philistines. We've seen it already in the previous chapter, where we looked at David slaying the, the great fearful warrior of the Philistine army, Goliath. We see David as the one who, who wins that victory. It's as though he's anointed with that victory. And yet even further back, we see something else interesting in David. He's already been anointed to be king. The, the kind of the, the boy, the one who you would never think would be, is the one who's anointed to be king. The youngest of the family of Jesse, the one who's just the shepherd boy out in the field. It's as though God is putting a stamp on David and he's saying, I'll anoint you now and it's as certain now that you are king. There's nothing that's going to stand in the way. You are identified as the victor through your triumph over Goliath. And the ultimate conclusion of the story of David is that he finally brings peace for God's people. Jump right ahead to Samuel chapter 8 and verse 11. And we see that in the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Metheg Amma from the control of the Philistines. Here's this arc of the story of David against the backdrop of the enemy of the Philistines. And we see as we are battling with the Philistines under Saul, David is anointed as king. Then later on he... He wins the great, momentous victory against the great giant, but he's not yet king. But he's identified as the victor, and then finally he wins the victory, we see in chapter, uh, the second book of Samuel and chapter 8. How does this unfold? And what does it say about the whole of the story of, of the Bible? Well, keep this in your mind, because Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus. Who's Jesus? According to Matthew, Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, the one who 
gains the victory for God's people, who is the son of David. So Matthew, as he opens up the, 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 first, the first gospel in the New Testament, as it unfolds the story of Jesus, right in the first sentence of the story of Jesus, we see that Jesus is attached to the story of David. Isn't that incredible? It's as though God is so assured in the journey of his dealing with the, his people through history that the narrative of David has to be worked out in a particular way because Jesus is going to come and fulfill the pattern of David. So how do we see it? I think the first thing that we see here is that we see David, I'm going to describe it in this way, David, the peace bringer. Look at how we open up our, our chapter in verse 1 of chapter 18. After David had finished talking to Saul, when's he talking to him? Immediately after slaying Goliath. John, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day Saul kept David with him and did not let him return from his family. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. What's he saying there? What is Jonathan saying to David? He's saying, I am the son of Saul, but I see that there is something significant in you where you are going to inherit something which, is, which I am clothed for. I'm clothed to be the the king beyond Saul. We've just seen this unfold in our, in our own country. The natural next monarch, and yet Jonathan is saying, even at this point, I see that there is something in you where what I were and what I plan to be is actually yours. I acknowledge it, and more than acknowledge it, I embrace it. And so Jonathan now is contrasted against his father. What's the attitude towards David between Saul and Jonathan? On the one hand, we have the son who gives himself to the idea that David is the one who is to be king. And Saul, we see as the story unfolds, becomes more hardened. I've tried to understand. I'm not clear in my mind if anybody can help me afterwards. I'd be re really appreciate it. I can't understand yet and can't clearly see, maybe I've missed it, whether Saul and Jonathan even know that Samuel has not been anointed by, sorry, that Saul, so let me start again. Let me just start that sentence. I don't know, I can't remember whether Saul and Jonathan know that Samuel has anointed David. I don't know whether Jonathan is seeing something here or whether he knows that event. I don't know whether Saul is... So help me please somebody later on if, if you can spot it. But what we see is that there is a transition that is taking place even within the house of Saul. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was successful. So successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, 
The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with dancing and singing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And that moment, later on in the narrative, one thing, if you're reading this back, one of the things that Samuel, the book of Samuel doesn't do is it doesn't, it doesn't speak chronologically clearly. It, 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 it kind of jumps backwards and forwards and introduces different narratives at different times. Now we have Samuel here, who is, uh, Saul here, who is, who is seeing the impact of the success of David as a victor over the enemy, over the one who will crush, who will mutilate, who will savage God's people and have done from the very beginning of their existence, we see that, that Saul sees that David is gaining the victory. What do we see as Saul's response to that? Look at verse 8 and 9. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Here we've got this, this kind of festering resentment building up. And yet what we know about David, if we go back to chapter 16, he's already been in the presence of Saul as a younger boy. As a younger man, he's already been identified to be brought in to play the lyre and to sing. He's already been in the presence of Saul to do that. To bring what? To bring a peace to the household of Saul. It says back in chapter 16 that uh, at the time where there is what's described as an evil spirit that comes upon Saul, a resentment and anger. At that very time, David is brought in to calm Saul. He, he comes in as a peace bringer. And yet, what do we see that a peace bringer brings in this context? The peace bringer doesn't bring peace for Saul. Do you know when I, when, I, when I was reading through this, there was a verse in the New Testament that exploded into my mind and, and I got that verse in a way that I had never understood before. And it's a, really, it's a really challenging verse. It's a verse that's hard to come to terms with. It says this in Matthew chapter 10 and 34 and 35. Jesus says this, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Hang on a sec, Jesus. Didn't, didn't the angels sing when you arrived that you were bringing peace on earth, goodwill to men? And yet Jesus says, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father. 
And, and I look at that and think, wow, that is exactly what happens between Saul and Jonathan and David. David brings peace. And yet the bringing of peace brings division and a sword. It's not as though Jesus or David bring a sword to the battle, but what it brings out is the exposure of the true nature of our hearts and what the violence and resentment that builds up when we determine to stand against God. When there is that when there is that crisis in relationships at times, where even within families there is a crisis. There was a crisis in the family of Saul. There was a crisis in the family of Saul. Why? The crisis in the family of Saul was because he attributed victory that he gained to himself. And he attributed victory that David gave, gained to David. And yet the real victory was God's. And so the animosity, the anger, the envy, the anger, and ultimately the fear wells up in Saul. He hates the situation. He's already been brought in, David, to allay the fear and the anger of Saul. But look what happens next in verse 10. The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. I'm going to come back to that sentence because that's a massive statement. An evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. First bit of that section is really problematic. How does God send an evil spirit? How do, we, how do we work that out? I think as I've, as I've worked through this, what I see is there, a sen- there is a sense in which at times there are descriptions which are a human perspective. And what, what we see in a way is that Saul is allowed, he's no longer restrained, and there is a way in which God brings to him the justice and judgment of his opposition to God. And he allows that to play out in the heart of Saul. And it's evil. When you look at it, it's evil. In human terms, it's evil. But the reality is that God is saying... Saul, we've worked through this. We've been through this so many times. You've stood against me. You've you've taken the glory. You've decided that you're the one who's won. 
And I am not the one who is to be honored, worshipped, and glorified. You've grabbed it, you've taken it, and now you are free for that to be the outcome in your heart. And it is only evil. What a contrast. Saul, it says, while David was playing the liar, presumably, presumably given what we read in chapter 16, Saul's attendants could see what was happening here. They could see, they, they get a sense of where Saul is. They can see his attitude. They can see the way it's all beginning to bubble up. And so David is there playing the liar. Just calm him down. Bring peace. Bring peace. Saul, it says, is prophesying. What he's doing there is prophesying in the Old Testament most of the time pretty much all of the time, is speaking God's words. In an instant, Saul goes from speaking God's words to picking up a spear and trying to pin David to the wall. If that says anything, it says this. We need to treat very, very very seriously, a heart which is intent on opposing God. Because there are moments where God says, then go with it. And when we go with it, we end up in terrible places. What a, what a turning point in the experience of Saul to go from speaking God's words to trying to pin David to a wall with a javelin. He was so angry. Why? Because of the success of David. Verse 14 says, in everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And David knew it. And he lived it. And he, 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 he kind of personified the acceptance, the belief, the conviction, the day-to-day -day pattern of life which says, this is not me, this is God. Again, if the Saul-David narrative tells us anything, it should tell us that in every success in our lives, the attribution is to God. And yet, I know my heart. I know how easily and how quickly I take success to me. It's mine. I've achieved it. I've done this. I've done that. What that speaks with such power to us, to me, to say, it's God who's done it. We are so quick, aren't we? To say in the most difficult and the most challenging of times that God's with me. We want to know that God's with us when the chips are down. We get through a difficult situation and we say, God carried me through that. That, that is a wonderful thing to be able to say. To be able to come out the other side with the absolute conviction 
that we know that God was with us in the most difficult of times. And yet time and time again, we forget that in the good times, he is equally there. He, was there. he is there in the success. He is there in the glory. And so, the opportunity that we have is to shift our position to a mindset which says that we have total dependence upon God for every outcome, good and bad, and therefore everything that we do and every success that we gain is a platform for us to worship Him. To give thanks to Him. And that's exactly what David lives his life doing. He, he, he has problems. We come to the life of David at some point in the future. There's massive challenges in the life of David. But he becomes the one who brings the victory for God's people. It's as though we need to inhabit what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Him. It's Him. It's all about Jesus. We sang it last week, did we? It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. You are the outcome of the good. You are my hope for the good. You are the one who carries me through, but in the good times, you bring the future as well. And so how does now not yet work out for us? Because this idea absolutely does play out through the Bible. See, what we've seen already is that, in a sense, as soon as David is anointed by Samuel as a young boy in a field when he's dragged away from the sheep because none of his older brothers are good enough, as soon as he is anointed, in the storyline of God's dealings in the world, it is absolutely guaranteed that he is going to slay Goliath. It is likewise absolutely guaranteed that he is going to become the salvation for God's people through the kingship that God has placed upon him and the absolute assurance that he will be the salvation for God's people. And yet the reality is that in a sense David's story, even David's story is anticlimactic. David dies and the nation falls apart. Where do we go from there in the story? We go to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. Because the whole of this story of David, the whole of the guarantee that God is saying, David, now, as I anoint you, you have already, in a sense, defeated the Philistines. You've already defeated them. As, I, as you are anointed by Samuel, as as oil pours down your head and onto your body, the guarantee is that you've won the victory for God's people. And the reason that we see Jesus as the fulfillment is because we begin to understand in the New Testament that the battle really isn't against Philistines. It really isn't against these things just here and now. 
Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says this, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. He says it's a spiritual battle against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces in the, of evil in the heavenly realms. How are we going to win that battle? We win that battle in Jesus. Because if David's anointed at the point where Samuel pours oil on his head, then Jesus is recognized when his father at the baptism says, this is my well-loved son. And I am delighted in him. And at that moment, our victory is guaranteed. At that moment, actually before that moment. But we see it playing out in the storyline, in the parallel of David as, as Jesus is baptized and his work begins in this world. And then when does he slay Goliath? When does Jesus slay Goliath? Paradoxically, beautifully, amazingly, he slays Goliath when he is slain. When he is crushed. When he is defeated. When he is nailed to a cross. We see the three days of victory. Because it's at that moment we see this story unfolding. It's almost as though as Jesus is nailed to a cross, it's as the stone flies out of the sling and hits Goliath. But the real victory is three days later when Jesus rises from the dead and he wins the victory. And you say, that's great, but that's 2,000 years ago. You say, well, if David's victory over the Philistines was guaranteed, guaranteed when he slew the giant, and we don't see it finally fulfilled until book two of Samuel, chapter eight, when he finally subdues the Philistines, God's story in the world says with absolute assurance the victory is won when Jesus returns. That's how it plays out. That's how David is the, is the picture of the spiritual victory that Jesus wins. So that the son of David becomes our champion. He becomes our champion. Who are you? Quasi Kwarteng at the beginning of the week was convinced that he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, yet he wasn't. It, is, it was already done. If we believe in Jesus, it's already done. The victory is already there. We live now, but not yet. That's the guarantee. That's the way God plays out. That's why the stories run parallel in these ways so that Jesus can be seen ultimately as the victor. The one who will return. The righteous king. The one who will 
absolutely defeat those spiritual powers and domains and authorities that we fight against and we feel as though we are not winning, Jesus says, it's already won. If the, if, if the slaying of a giant is the assurance of the defeat of the Philistines, the victory in Jesus is a billion times that. It is the absolute guarantee that our hope is in Him.